My guests today are Serena Ryan and Ethan Itzkow, who have proven their ability to create visually stunning films that showcase their meticulous attention to detail and their passion for storytelling. Their first collaboration, Cast, well, available now on Prime Video, won a slew of awards during its multi-year festival run. And the duo has also been individually recognized with Ethan winning Best Actor at the Chelsea Film Festival for his work in high score. And he, had, he can also be seen in TV shows like the hit Netflix series, You, starring Penn Badgley. Now, meanwhile, Serena has toured the world in multiple stage productions, and she has performed at Carnegie Hall and the Tony Award-winning Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. Their current short film, High Score, follows a rapidly growing white supremacist who is drawn deeper into the abyss of online radicalization. And the story addresses the real-life consequences of misinformation and hate speech proliferating unchecked on the Internet. They are both here to talk about their high-energy and very tense short film, High Score Today. So let's welcome filmmakers as well as actors, Serena Ryan and Ethan Itzkow, to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Ward. We're so excited to be here with you. Very happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Well, for both of you, how did you get started in film? Oh, goodness. Well... So, you know, as you mentioned, we both started as actors. Uh, when I was working at the Cincinnati Playhouse, I was interested in working with a with a talent agent, right? Or rather, a talent agent was interested in working with me. And I knew that I would need real footage in order to be pitched by her. But I had been working exclusively on stage, so I didn't have any, you know, film footage to show for myself. Uh, meanwhile, Ethan did. He had already been working on film and TV. He had some materials uh, gathered. And I remember saying to him, like, well, you know, I guess I could do the whole, like, student film thing and hope that something gets finished and wait mm. years to get some footage back. Or we could shoot a scene together. Uh, so initially we had intended just to do that, to shoot one scene that would suffice as my calling card for this talent agent. And as we started developing it, we realized like, well, if this is supposed to look like it comes from a movie, I guess we need to make a movie. And it just kind of snowballed from there. One thing led to the other. We were very lucky to be showered with resources that we never expected. And the next thing we knew, we had a, a finished film, Cashed, which you mentioned. It was winning awards on the festival circuit and streaming on Amazon Prime. And we were like, okay, well, I guess, I guess we're good at this. I guess we should continue doing this. Yeah. Wow, that that almost sounds too easy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we definitely she left some, out all the hard parts. Yeah, yeah, right. We hit some bumps in the road along the way, but, but yeah, yeah. You left well. out the part to where you like you're waiting tables, uh, you're being a bouncer at a nightclub, you know, <sighs> uh, working at Walmart, and then doing film at night, you know. But that's oh, yeah. kind of cool that uh, you're thinking, hey, I need a good demo reel for my IMDb page. And then you end up doing a whole film. I mean, with cash, I mean, how well received has that been? Well, it is multi-award winning. Yeah, I mean, we won the Audience Choice Award at the Holly Shorts Film Festival on their monthly series. And we got uh, a camera package award with that. We won awards in Colorado, here in New York, uh, out in L.A. I can just brag a little bit that yeah. it has a pretty high rating on Amazon Prime Video. 
And that's not just like, you know, producing. That's some organic organic response there. Yeah. And luckily that that camera package that we won with Cached or you know, from Cached allowed us to make high score. So one just again, it just continued to snowball. One led to the next. Well, see, I would rather go with organic reviews cuz I'm one that really does not trust Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, oh, sure. No. No. <laughs> so organic <laughs> always works, but wow, high score. Hmm. What a film. Now, Ethan, you played the lead in this, correct? Yes. Yeah. I had to do a double take because your headshot and then the one then the character I'm looking at in high score, I'm thinking, that's not the same guy. <laughs> I know. Totally yeah. transformed, right? And I actually had like some dude write an entire at attack article about that. He doesn't look like that in real life. <laughs> I'm like, it's acting. Calm down. Well, yeah, uh, because, but, yeah. you know, I'm looking at the character. And I mean, for you to prepare for that particular role, because this is, you know, this is y'all's film. Hmm. Um, I mean, was it a makeup situation or did you kind of stay up for 24 hours just to kind of get the whole dark circle under the eye effect or what? So that was like a half and half. So we were producing the film. We were doing like 10 jobs each um, while we were making it. So I was only getting like four or five hours of sleep a night on the shooting days. Uh, we also had a great makeup artist, Asia Park. Asia Park. And for the, for like the haircut, I went to a local barber and I was just like, can you make it really ugly and un uneven? I had these like really long, amazing curls that from doing a stage production the past two years previous. And then he just took a buzzer and went. And that was like a heartbreak <laughs> for him. His curly hair is, you know, very precious to him. So yeah. it was like a real uh sacrifice for the character to just get yeah. rid of all those curls and you of course we based what the character looked like on an archetype of a bunch of different mass shooters so we looked up profiles and pictures of all these different mass murderers and we were like okay this is a pretty straightforward image we can go with that will be applicable to a lot of different scenarios you know i even hate to say this but if i saw your mug shot on the news and it and it was a, a mass casualty event. I think the general public goes, yeah, he looks like one. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's just about right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, pale, short hair, dark, probably, you know, looks like he hadn't slept mm. a, a whole lot. But I want to kind of get down into some of the research on this film because was there a particular topic of the overload of conspiracy theories and overblown narratives that triggered you to create this film? Absolutely. Um, so there is a conspiracy theory called the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory, which when we made the film, not a lot of people have heard about. It's been unfortunately featured on like the Tucker Carlson show and in the highest echelons of government in the United States all over mainstream media and social media. But I mean, at the time, it wasn't widely discussed. Yeah. Now, and was this, are you said the Great Replacement, is this also known as what I'm hearing from other people called the Great Reset? I'm not 100% informed on Great Reset. It, it, I'll explain the conspiracy theory. You let me know if it matches you up. Go, you go ahead. Yeah. So the Great Replacement posits that a shadowy cabal of people, which of course always ends up being Jews, 
is responsible for bringing in other ethnic minorities and queer folk and elevating black folk in the United States to higher positions of wealth and authority. And so they believe that white people are being replaced by this shadowy cabal, that it's that nonsense term called white genocide. Wow. Uh, and this, That's the first time yeah. I've actually heard that. Hmm. So it is unfortunately really prolific in our national discourse, especially online, which is how, why the film centers so much on online discourse. And it's responsible for a slew of mass shootings, the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre, the Poway synagogue shooting, the shooting up in Buffalo, New York, a few years ago um, at a supermarket predominantly uh, frequented by black patrons in El Paso, Texas against Latino immigrant communities. As recently as in Iowa, just this month, uh, that young kid who perpetrated that attack was found to have been uh, indoctrinated in spaces like Discord and, and various online spaces that push this idea. So the reason that we were driven to make the film is that in 2018, the Pittsburgh massacre happens. Uh, six months to the day later, the Poe Synagogue shooting happens. And we were actually in Los Angeles screening cashed for a festival. And Poe and Los Angeles are only two hours apart. So we thought, oh my God, again. And we won this camera package from the festival. So it seemed like this sign from the universe that we should do something about it. Yeah, we were touring at the time, actually. Ethan and I were lucky enough to be starring in a theater show together that was touring internationally. And so while we were reading about these attacks one after another, we were out of the country and feeling especially powerless to do anything to affect some change in this space. And I remember when we got the news about the camera package, we were sitting on like the edge of the bed in a hotel, I think in Argentina. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, what do you want to do with this? And I'll never forget as long as I live, he said, I want to make a movie about hate because uh, it had just been tearing us up for, for months at this point. And that was really the, the impetus for writing this movie. Well, then let me ask you this. Did you search uh, on websites like Reddit, uh, maybe tap into the dark web a bit to get a sense as to what triggers people to possibly commit mass murder, for example? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes. The very first stop on our like process before we ever put pen to paper, or I guess in this case, fingers to keys, uh, was a really deep period of frankly, like terrifying, nauseating research. Um, on top of reading like books, various books on the subject, we spent a lot of time in these spaces, Reddit, like you just described, Discord. Vote, Gab, 4chan, 8chan. Um, and you can even find this extremist material all over Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So what we did was I created a bunch of fake profiles and went into the communities, watched what they said, took screenshots of, of what they were saying, took screenshots of the images that they were sharing and amassed this like horrible trove of materials um, that just became more and more extreme the more time I spent on the platform. Because, of course, algorithms funnel you down to specific niche mm. communities and content very quickly. And you can see this on TikTok, especially right now, is uh, there was just an article in The Forward last week 
that a journalist started a new TikTok profile and basically within an hour they were fed extremist conspiracy theories. Yeah, so I finally I finally stopped posting on TikTok. I was just like, I don't have time for this, <laughs> you know. But you know, when when I watched High Score, the sad thing is, is that people today are so easily triggered, and I don't care what side of the aisle they're on, I don't care what group, what race. It seems like everybody's triggered by something. And everybody gets ticked off like, well, that group's getting ahead of me. And that's mm. the type of mentality that we see. Um, I'm not going to mention any names, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a conversation that I had that kind of really works well with your film because we live in a time now to where we hear two words, misinformation, disinformation, and the public has no clue what either one of them means. And is there an actual difference? So I was talking to someone a while back. And this is what they told me. The person I talked to had worked at the White House. To the point of sitting in the Oval Office. So I'm not going to mention any names. Because mm -hmm. they're kind of on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> so they were working under a Democrat president. And they told me, would you believe that 76% of the cons conspiracy theories, theories that you read online are true? And I went, what? He said, but the other 24% is written by taking bits of the 76% and twisting it. He goes, now you have 100% of information that you don't know which one's true, which one's false. Which one's a white lie? He goes, the point is, is we don't want the public to know either way. And I went, wow. you've got to be kidding me. He goes, so he goes, it's like, this way, if someone reads the 76% of truth, they have no idea if it's actually true because of the other 24% is muddying up the water. So we now, yeah. So we now live in an era, in a time where, we don't know. So I got to the point when I would hear these stories and, and you probably took time to research, you know, some of the, um, let's say, uh, we'll, we'll pick on the, I don't want to say pick on, we'll just choose the conservative media, for example. Sure. Did you take time to listen to maybe some of the radio shows, maybe watch some of the the news outlets, just to kind of get a feel of what they were saying compared to what the, uh, let's say, the liberal news outlets were saying. So that way you could kind of weigh in creating your character? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're right. This isn't relegated to one end of the political spectrum. People use the this damaging rhetoric regardless of where they sit on that spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um we did take a look at conservative media, at more progressive media, and there are parallels to it, and there are still parallels to it today. You, you'd had Tucker Carlson before his show got canceled. He was very explicit. He, he made an entire segment on Great Replacement. This is after we made the film, but it's uh, helpful as an example. 
But then you also have trusted institutions like NPR who uncritically quote people that are using that rhetoric and themselves using rhetoric to describe immigrants and asylum seekers that I would classify as violence because they're saying that immigration surges or that they use these verbs that are more commonly associated with military campaigns. And so is there really a difference when you're talking about immigrants and asylum seekers in militaristic terms to someone on the other end of the political spectrum that's talking about an invasion on the border? Not functionally, in my mind. Well, that's um, what I liked about your film, because as a whole, when I watched the film, I didn't see it as leaning one way or another. It's hmm. it's basically looking, well, how I looked at it was, this is how some parts of humanity treat others. Now, and, and Ethan, your character is believing what he is reading at face value. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that we see today in society, that people will read, they still think the media can be trusted. And I don't know why people even think that, because both sides have their narratives that they write, that they push for particular reasons. You know, there was that old movie with Dustin Hoffman, you know, the tail wags the dog, and it still happens today. Now Absolutely. we just have the internet to do it. Yeah, that's right. It's like, I mean, TikTok is another great example, and it's not its not exclusively reserved for TikTok, but so many uh, Gen Zers today are getting their news from TikTok, right? Oof. And the, it's like the critical thinking switch has been turned off. <laughs> the, like you say, the, the consumption at face value is the norm lately, regardless of demographic, of age range, or you know what platform it is that you're consuming. Like we need to be receiving information from a spectrum of sources and and digesting it critically, not like you say, taking it at face value and and that's it. I mean, even even high score, it was such an eye-opening experience for me because as we're working through um, promoting the movie, we've learned that some major news outlets are afraid of touching the movie, right? Like we were told literally that it's too explosive and because it deals with white supremacy, not just one, but like various outlets are, and I quote, afraid of touching it because they don't want to piss off the internet. And for me, that was like a light bulb moment because it like, made that's me- that's the point. Well, but it, it, it <laughs> really made- That was the me... whole point of the film. <laughs> and it made me realize that just like you say, there is a bias, right? Like what is being reported on is not the news full stop. Like there is a narrative, there is an audience that every outlet is serving. We we have to put our thinking caps back on and challenge the way that we consume and the way that we digest this information. Well, let me ask you this one because you both of you know, I know, we're seeing this rise of citizen journalism because people are fed up by not knowing the truth. But mm. now, even with citizen journalism, who is actually telling the truth? Where are they getting their sources? And look, way back in 20, 
I think it was tw early 2016 before the election. Uh, I found, like you had said, you know, particular Reddit threads or you're on 4chan and you're reading this stuff. And, and, and I bet both of you probably felt the same way I did. You're reading this stuff and you're like, you know, because at first you're thinking, is this true? Because it's, in a way, it's so outlandish. But then the way people write today, they can get extremely convincing. I would say that, yeah, like you're right. Um, and especially with conspiracy theories, they present simple solutions to complex problems. And humans love simple solutions to complex problems. They never work. Like, they're not true. That's why they're conspiracy theories. But I would say that... Um, there is something called the fourth estate, like media as an institution. You have to take everything with a grain of salt. You have to realize that these are privately held companies for the most part that have a profit incentive. And that's factoring into the guests that they bring on, the pieces that they feature. Um, but at a certain point, we're going to have to say that a news article that's been fact-checked by a team of 50 might have more worth than a dude on his blog. <laughs> like we just, we, we have to take some things as maybe not being wholesale true, but having more elements of truth than somebody's toilet thoughts that they well, decided to put Yeah, on my deal was, is like you would get somebody and say, you know, my sources told me. And I'm thinking, dude, you're a nobody. You got no sources. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, like, like, FBI? like the Pentagon is calling you up and giving you inside information. You're dreaming. <laughs> okay. But I've got to bring up a scene in this film that I found it's, un well, there's a lot of uncomfortable scenes in this film, but that conference room scene, as I watched it, I felt so sorry for the guy. Because mm. this very thing, regardless if you're guilty or not, it's happening to so many innocent people. Because, I mean, I'm going to let you talk. Yeah. So a big thing with that conference room scene is, is two things. One, the boss handled it wrong. Yeah. And we, from the get-go, when we wrote that scene, we were like, she has to handle this completely incorrectly to drive this man to communities that will listen to him and reinforce his existing beliefs so that he goes into the rabbit hole right if he felt wholly supported and well taken care of at work uh, and by the communities that were already around him he would have no need to be pushed further into these destructive realms and two um he was objectively wrong in what he was saying like uh, what he was saying wasn't couth and i put in that scene things that i used to believe in real life because i was raised in a culture and in an environment that perpetuated racist ideas so i was like okay well the best way to do this is to take things that now i know are bullshit and put them in this scene so that people when they watch it they might think oh but wait he's just saying he's just saying something that's true so that the audience members can see that like his casual mistakes come from the same root 
as where he ends up at the end of the film. And what? I love that you were able to empathize with him in that moment, Ward, because like our whole MO was not to vilify this type of individual, right? But rather to, it's not a documentary by any means, but we were sort of putting on our like documentarian hats, if you will, and trying to show but just literally how this happens. And, and it always comes from a place of vulnerability. Well, it always comes from a place of- This, it is, because this scene, this one scene is so important. And like you said, Ethan, she handled it wrong, which many companies do. You, We also know that no one is born racist. You're right. raised that way. And so That's like you right. said, Ethan, you went back into your past thinking, you know, looking at the things that you had once believed. I mean, I was raised in a small town in Texas that was probably 70 miles from where the KKK had their headquarters. Oh my and, goodness, wow. And probably another, and they would do cross burnings probably 20 miles away. Mm. Out in the middle of nowhere. You know, but you would drive down the highway back in the 70s and the, the highway would be lined up with cars bumper to bumper on the shoulder parked because they all got out because they were all putting on their robes to go out into that field. <sighs> and so we're not born racist. We're raised that way. And to and when I'm looking at him in that conference room and 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 I could I can just feel how He's trying to defend himself. A lot of people don't know that the words that come out of their mouth are actually wrong. Exactly. Why was yeah. he fired? Well, you know, I guess he was fired because he raised his voice, but, you know, and I understand that some companies have, um, uh, I guess, classes to take in a way to maybe try to correct some of that thinking and hopefully not to ingrain something wrong, but man, I, I felt, I felt his, I felt his, his anger. I even felt embarrassed about that scene. I mean, there's just so emotion, but you nailed everything on the scene because everything there was, tr is just, is just true to life. That's yeah. right. That's right. And I love that you say that so many people who say these sorts of things, which, you know, anybody listening in from home, when you watch the movie, you'll know what we're referring to. Um, nine times out of 10, somebody is not speaking this way specifically to be hateful. Right. <laughs> and there are, there are some people who I guess like really dig their feet into the sand and like know that they're hateful and they're okay with that, but that's not the norm. That's not the majority of people. And, and, the things that that character says in that scene are things that Ethan was raised thinking were true. Yeah. And that's not because he's a hateful person. And it took many years for him to realize that those are not true at all. But like you say, you're not born hateful. You're not born racist. It's part of the community. Yeah, that you but grow up. what I also noticed in that scene, or really got me thinking companies today are starting to monitor employees, private social media accounts. So employees have to realize somebody's watching. And this is why I always tell my friends, you got to be careful what you post. As, a, as an example, and this is where people don't understand social media. There are not a bunch of humans sitting there tracking every post. It's an algorithm. 
It's a bot. So I had a friend who was on Facebook, casually made a comment on his friend's post, and just simply said, man, proud of those boys. He was referring to a sport. Oh, oh no. <sighs> Facebook bans him for like a couple of weeks because the Facebook's algorithm thinks he was talking about the Proud Boys at the Capitol on January the 6th. And he's like, we were talking football. And the dude gets banned. So he yeah. texts me and goes, whatever you do, don't put these two words together on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, algorithms have a frightening power in our current culture, whether that's like funneling you towards information you shouldn't be exposed to, or like you're saying, misinterpreting people's speech online. I can't tell you how many times I've reported Holocaust denial on Facebook and I'll get a message like two hours later being like, this didn't violate our terms of service. But then things like what you're saying, you accidentally put two words together and you're banned for a week. Right. So this is this is the power of the robots in our everyday lives. Like we need more human oversight on on how these companies operate, which I'm sure they know because they've been dragged into a couple congressional hearings. Well, yeah. I mean, I believe in the freedom of speech, but the censorship now is on complete overload. Even when I upload. Uh, let's say an interview onto YouTube on, onto one of our YouTube channels. I'm looking at the hashtags going that one may be a no, no because ah. and it's, and it's an innocent hashtag because it has to do with your interview and you're like, Hmm. So I have seen interviews where I'm like, that's a great interview. What's going on? So I would go in there and change and remove certain hashtags to repost yeah. again. Because mm. we had the same problem. Yeah. Yeah. On I mean, TikTok, I, I, we, uh, no, go ahead, Ethan. I was just going to say that we had the same problem on TikTok. We did an interview with an influencer friend of ours about the film and the robots of TikTok decided that it was inappropriate for their platform. It like it misinterpreted and <laughs> thought that we were, you know, trying to proliferate white supremacist ideas. All it did was flag white supremacy uh, and that was enough for it to That's shut it, it down it without done. any human understanding of the actual content. You, you know, that, that's like, that, that, that's like telling all the, the women on TikTok and, and Instagram that, uh, you can't be posting bikini pics and yoga pant pics. Uh, and at the same time griping about the Me Too movement. And because it's just weird. You know, you know, it's it's like there's this there's this secret algorithm double standard in social mm -hmm. media, and like you said, you have this incredible film high score. It's powerful. It's tense. It's 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 real life, because, like you said, you know, you you, you kind of cornered all of the the past mass murderers in the past couple of years, and there's a pattern, and it's an online hate speech pattern that these people are believing and then they dive into it and they think they're going to be the solution to the problem. That's right. Yeah. And, and while we were researching, something that we learned is that another piece of the, the pattern, another piece of the puzzle that tends to recur over and over and over again is that for the most part, these guys tend to be relatively young or very young and they feel disenfranchised in one way or another. They don't tend to have 
a lot of healthy community around them. Generally, they don't have strong family ties. They don't have, you know, they're not part of like clubs at school. I mean, it's the exact same radicalization that happens with people who join ISIS. Like ISIS actually has a very strong online presence, or they used to, where they would recruit people in similar circumstances, people that don't have something going on and they want to be part of something bigger. Mm. And that's the kind of group brainwashing that we observed in a little bit more decentralized, not with a particular organization, but the same result. They prey uh, on the vulnerable. And I, I think a lot of people don't love it when I use that word to describe these types of people because we like to believe that they're born this way, that they're born evil or something like that. And no, it's just not they true. Are, like, yeah. You, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. They're vulnerable. And people are taking advantage of that. And their minds are being twisted because it's easier to blame a group of people that they don't see in front of them, that they have no day-to-day exposure to, than to take responsibility for their lives. Now, there's a scene in this. There's, there's a couple of scenes I want to kind of go over. One of them is where he is typing like 90 miles an hour. Hmm. And as he's typing and he's making these posts... He's either getting his post deleted or he's getting banned from the site, which I thought was an incredible oxymoron. You have these sites that fuel this, but they're going to turn around and go, oh, you've crossed the line. So we're going to delete your post or ban you from the site. I'm like, you're the one that's been feeding these people this crap. Yeah. And that actually exposes something about the internet that everyone should be aware of is that a lot of these online communities that proliferate this hate speech use coded language. We specifically make use of the triple parentheses they in the film, which is coded language for this person is Jewish, uh, because these websites, if, if you say like the N word on a website, you're getting banned. If you use a euphemism, you're not. And so, A lot of these websites have a double-edged sword problem where they're trying to tackle this problem, albeit not effectively, but they're trying. And they're doing two things. One, they're making people create coded dog whistle language so that they can stay on the mainstream platforms. And two, for the people that are so extreme that they don't want to use coded language, they're pushing them to websites that will not moderate their content. And so by doing that, they get exposed to even more extreme content. Because now they're probably going to the dark web for that. That's exactly exactly right. You get banned from Facebook, you're going to go to 4chan. On 4chan, you can say whatever you want. doesn't matter how how horrible. And you'll be surrounded by people who Who agree agree (laughs) and who then um, bolster those ideas. Yeah, you know, it's... and, And the character, Ethan, that you played, boy... He went, he went off the moment that somebody even disagreed with him or deleted his post or, or banned him. It just, it was like pouring gasoline on a fire. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people react to things online in this way. Um, we have kind of developed an authoritarian mindset when we interact online. It's either 
this is exactly my opinion. You don't agree with it. Get out. Or, or I'm going to create myself a little safe bubble where only what I believe is true. This is the danger of echo chambers, right? Regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, living in an echo chamber is not healthy for the mind. It's not healthy for the spirit. We need a diversified spectrum of ideas and thought to be surrounding us. Like that's how you stay in balance. Yeah. You know, I don't, uh, I hate talking politics. I don't interview people when it comes to politics. This is not a political discussion that we're having. This is a speech. This is a belief system that needs to be changing, which is why your film is so important. Um, but that, that scene, the scene in the movie when he's basically being a, an Uber driver, Hmm. that was extremely uncomfortable. Oh yeah. To where he literally Uh, turns around, stops in the middle of the street and just goes on a racist rant. I was like, did you pick that scene up from maybe a story that someone told you? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, actually earlier today, we were just talking about how that scene when we initially wrote it had been very different and we were working really closely with our um, director of photography, Jorge Arzak, who like takes beautiful pictures, right? Like he, he, he does the cinematography in an incredible way, but he also really contributes to the storytelling. Uh, he elevates the storytelling in unbelievable ways. And if my memory serves, he sort of helped steer where that scene ended up because we had written it very differently previously. Yeah, really? he did. Yeah. yeah I mean, Truth be told, when we first started writing, we tried to make the thing a, a dark comedy, and it was just like, well, it got way too dark to be comedic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you can't really laugh at it now, can you? No, uh, it's not so funny. <laughs> so Jorge guided us to a more truthful place, and we kind of discovered after the fact that there are a variety of news articles about this very thing. Someone's Uber driver goes nuts <gasps> on them. That's I mean, right. just a couple days ago, um, a Jewish man was assaulted by his Uber driver. Driver kicked kicked him out of the car because he didn't like his energy and then followed him and attacked him. So like we wrote that scene to show a little bit about how a lot of these online ownership companies like Airbnb and Uber and Lyft, they're really great services. But the reason that taxis and hotels had an advantage in terms of civil rights is that like denying people service is illegal, but with Lyft and Uber and Airbnb, people might be denying service to you based on protected class. And you have no idea because it's very deregulated. Yeah. And now I remember we went, we had like a deep dive on YouTube actually. Like if you were to go and YouTube racist Uber, uh, racist Uber driver, you'll get a lot of results. There's a lot of really upsetting, uncomfortable, uh, video that people have taken for real in real world instances. And we use those heavily when we were writing that scene as inspiration. The, 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 all right. So you have, and and I love the way you played this scene. You have a white, you have a, a white husband and then you have, um, she, was she Hispanic or Indian? Uh, she was from America. 
Yeah, the character's meant to be Central American. Okay, so, okay, Central America. And her words and her response were spot on. Mm. Because I, it's almost like I, it's almost like I was sitting in her place. Because when she spoke, I'm like, that's how we're supposed to truly look at other people as equals. Uh, all our blood's the same color. We're, we're taught to not judge a book by its cover, but we do. And when she spoke, I was like, that's exactly how we're supposed to be. Because oh, I'm so <laughs> glad that resonated with you, Ward. I'm so glad you picked up on that because when we were writing that scene, it was really, really important to me that Paulina... Uh, so in a way, it's like her husband, Jeremiah, is sort of the rest of us, how most of us might respond if an Uber driver starts like berating us like that. And I wanted Paulina to be the best of us, that she somehow is able to, to find this well of sympathy, like this really like heartbroken sympathy for this character, not to make excuses for him or anything like that. But, you know, she says, I feel so sad for you that this is your pitiful life that you are stuck in uh and yeah yeah and then what i liked because i don't know if a lot of people would even notice this i did but with her then you have her husband who is white and now he's playing defense he's defending her he's defending her culture her eth, uh, her ethnic background, which I loved, because if they were both of the same culture, it wouldn't have had the same effect. Totally. So and, the interracial uh, thing, it it worked to a T. Yeah, and he's not just white; he's Jewish. Yeah. And when the driver zero, you know, when the main character, the who's driving the car, zeroes in on Jeremiah's star of david necklace it just sets him off when he recognizes paulina from the office and notices that she's with a jewish man there's the conspiracy theory right. in his mind exactly like immediately it's the proof <laughs> it's like as if he's seeing the proof right she replaced him at work and she's married to a jewish man oh my god it all makes sense when in reality it's a complete coincidence right uh yeah. in the reality of the film but that's all this character needed to confirm his bias, right? To push him over that edge and make him think that all this spiral he was falling into was totally true. And and that's what a lot of people do today. They're out in public, they go to the grocery store, they may go wherever, a restaurant, and they think that everything that they've read and then what they see in public is just like, that proves my point. When they when they're judging again, without knowing the person, without knowing the facts, you know I've talked to Hispanics, and and I and I've asked a few who were in, are in Hollywood, and I said, do you deal with racism, you know? And when I, and, and I know it's kind of a dumb question, but I said, do you deal with racism in a way that when people meet you, people who don't know you. Do you get a sense wondering if they think that you just crossed the border or you've lived here for 40 years? And they go, oh, yeah. They go, it's gotten to the point now to where 
you know, our whole families for five generations have been born in America and we get treated like we just crossed the border. Sure. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, um, half of my family is, is Guatemalan. My stepmother, my sisters, um, with her are, are Guatemalan. And when they were going to school, this is so crazy. When they were going to school, they were in classes. They were, they were doing great. They filled out a survey for the school. What language do you speak at home? Spanish. English and Spanish. Yeah. But because they mark Spanish, suddenly they're pulled out of class and they have to take an ESL test. Meanwhile, they're straight A students. Like they're, they're, <laughs> they're AP like, students. They speak English fluently. They've like. been doing the classes in English for months. And then all of a sudden they learn, oh, you're Guatemalan. You speak Spanish at home. All right. You have to take an ESL test. I'm like. That's what? racist. That's yeah. racist. That's Absolutely. Racist. See, that's racist. And people don't understand that racism is, is not going out and yelling at people and, and then calling them some derogatory name. Racism is so, um, it's done quietly. Mm. Even in that instance, you know, um, and, and I see it across the board. I mean, we're all in film and and you can see it. You can see how certain things are presented or done or said or are quietly implied. And, and I've talked to people from all walks of life, you know, and I've made it a point to interview people from the LGBT community and trans and, and Hispanics and, and, and Latinos, which I love talking to them. They are just so much fun. <laughs> um, and and I and I've had many African American guests, and to hear stories of how they grew up. I mean, I interviewed this actress who who uh, appears in Tyler Perry's The Oval, uh, Taja V. Simpson, wonderful, wonderful person, and she was telling me a story of internal family racism, and I'm like, what does that mean? She goes, oh, it's the brown paper bag test. And I said, what is that? She goes, well, when you're, she goes, well, she was raised in Louisiana. She said, well, when when you were raised where I was raised, even within the black community, it was called the the brown paper bag test. You know, the lighter you were, the pretty much better chance you had of making it. The darker you were, probably not. Or you would have a relative, you know, judge your friends by, their color of being black and then say, uh, no, you need to come home right now or you need to send them home. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, within the same race. So racism isn't just black and white. It can be within one's own culture. So I've learned a lot on what people have dealt with. And, and it's an eye opening experience, which is why your film is, I mean, it is just so today. Yeah, and I mean, it's yet another spectrum, right? Like that was a key element of the movie as well, that racism is such a broad term. It runs the gamut from what you witnessed growing up, Ward, of crosses burning in Texas and and people being physically harmed to slurs, to um, discrimination in the workplace, to what may be presumed to be very casual, right? Like very innocuous, perhaps unintended 
comments like in the scene that's right like in the well, uh, yeah, see, when i when i was growing up i'm trying to remember what grade it was it's probably i guess today they call it like middle school or something and one of my favorite teachers ever she was jewish and you know back in the day there was no internet there were no cell phones there was no apps you had a television and if you wanted the news you either waited till seven o'clock in the morning or six o'clock in the evening, or you bought a newspaper. (laughs) But what was so wonderful about her, not only was she one of the most kindest, caring teachers I'd ever had, but when it came time when there was a Jewish holiday, she would explain to us why she was going to be out a week. And so she would spend time explaining what the holiday meant. For to me, it was just an education to learn of somebody else's, you know, cool background. That's fabulous. I love to hear that. We were just talking with a dear friend of ours the other day who is of Hawaiian descent, and she's a teacher in New England, and she's having the experience right now, horrible, devastating experience, that she chanted, she did some Hawaiian chants with her young students, because that's part of who she is, right? And the school board, the parents are in an uproar because she exposed their children to a culture that's different than what they're familiar with. And they thought they accused her of indoctrination, which is very confusing. It wasn't it wasn't like a religious ceremony. It was cultural. Indoctrinating her. See, this is why I, I lay much the blame today for the Internet. Um, the quickness that we can get anything in the palm of our hand. Uh, we, you know, to me, I think we need to go back to the old school ways of, of just television in certain areas, reading the newspaper, not being inundated. I mean, you know, the, you know, they said one of the worst things we've ever had in society is 24 seven news. And it really yeah, has yeah. been that way. And to have someone share their culture, like that. So, you know, it's like I've had a couple of interviews where um, my guests were from Middle Eastern countries and we were talking about some very uh, interesting subjects, but I didn't know the culture. So I would ask them, I said, well, can you explain to me and my audience what this part of your culture means or what how does your how does your government view people like that you know and so they would walk me through and then explain it and i'm sitting there the whole time thinking then the news media is faking their whole narrative Mm -hmm. because i'm hearing the true story of someone who's actually lived it experienced it knows about it but then the news media paints a whole different picture in a way in which quietly causes us to dislike people yeah i would say it's it's very hard to get information without bias. If it comes from a human being, it comes with a bias. So that's where information comes from. Other human beings reporting it, telling you. And we also have to take into account that like the character in the film, they've been raised with these biases that may not know that they are speaking with. And that trickles into the way that news articles are written. Uh, the way that we describe immigrant groups or the way that we describe non-Western governments, there is that history of 
viewing the non-Western culture as barbarous, which is, of course, a little bit of white supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> well, your your film really got dark. And I learned something that I didn't actually know. Mm. I had never heard the term high score except with video games. What was your, both of you, what was your personal reaction when you learned what it meant on the dark web? Oh my God, just utter heartbreak and, and terror. I mean, it's, it's horrifying. And anger, like, like we specifically named it high score because of that meaning, because I had read transcript of an online interaction that the Poe synagogue shooter had done. Um, and his former online community was making fun of him because they said, and I quote, dumbass threw his life away for a high score of one. And they were treating the death, like the death that happened at the Poeg synagogue shooting. They were treating it like a video game. Well, because, <laughs> you know, part of the whole motivation of this ideology is to become a martyr, right? Is the ultimate goal is martyrdom, frankly. And that's only worth it if you have a high score of- A lot. A lot, right? And that it's just sickening. It's it's really sickening. I mean, when we were researching all of this, uh, it, was, it was tough. It was really, really tough to spend time in those spaces to learn this language, to just have that in our stomachs and our muscles and our minds for so long. But it, it, it allowed us to write and speak from a place of knowledge well, and, and from an Yeah, place. and you did. You researched your content extremely well. Thank you, you presented it in this film perfectly. It is an emotional ride from beginning to end. It's extremely tense. It's uncomfortable. It's embarrassing. We can probably get a feeling of anger here and there, definitely within this film. Um, and I almost parallel your film with a film documentary that was nominated for an Oscar in 2023 called mm. Stranger at the Gate, directed by Joshua Seftel, who, who works with a lot of people in the Muslim community. But he's not Muslim, you know. At least, you know, he's better. He's as white as I am. But the documentary paralleled your film because his documentary showed a former mil- American military person that got angry. Like, mm. what are these people doing in our country? I went over there and and fought for my country and their country, and why are they here? Blah blah blah. And his aim was to walk into a synagogue and wipe them all out. Oh, wow. But then he learned who they really were and became friends. He became family. And it shows the emotional side of taking time to learn and to communicate and embrace other people's differences. So when I saw the parallel, I was like, oh my gosh. Because here is how we want to see society change and people that may have tendencies to hurt people in horrible ways. But then there's a, there's a change of heart there because someone else from the very community that he wanted to hurt reached out 
with kindness and yes. love and change someone. And then when I look at your film, I'm like, oh, that, that, that guy needs someone like that. Yes, yes. Oh, that's yeah. amazing, Ward. That's incredible. Earlier today, we were just talking about uh, Derek Black. And I don't know if you're familiar with his story, but I think you think yeah. you can share a little bit. Oh, it's another me, beautiful story of redemption. So Derek Black um, was a former white nationalist. And he was a serious, seriously raised to the white nationalist culture. His father started Stormfront, which is a neo-Nazi online space. And He's the godson of David Duke. Who was the Grand Wizard of the, of the KKK. And so when he went to college, people found out about his beliefs and they ostracized him. You know, no one wanted to, to hang out with him at all. And through happenstance, a few Jewish students were like, why don't you just come to Friday night Shabbat dinner with us? Just come. And over a period of a couple of years, he kept going to these dinners. He would honestly talk with them and they would be like, listen, what you're saying is not true. Here's the information. And over a period of years of building this community, he disavowed white nationalism. Unfortunately, that took a tremendous toll on his family relationships because his family is still devoutly white nationalist, but he has now made it his life's mission to, to debunk and, and to de-radicalize because it is possible. People can be de-radicalized. This is just brainwashing and you can always deprogram people who are brainwashed. It, it, it just takes a lot of effort and care. And I does. love that story because it's such a beautiful example of how the antidote for destructive versions of community, you know, destructive uh, conspiracy theories is loving, wholesome, nurturing, holistic community, healthy community. Exactly. Well, let me ask you this. What has been the audience's reaction to your film? It's a love-hate film it's, for sure. It's run the gamut, Ward. You know, it's definitely run the gamut. I mean, it's- You've pissed it's, off a lot of people, right? Yeah, sure. The funny thing is, is it's, it's definitely a love-hate, right? Like people who want, I would say that on the whole, the people who've reached out to us to tell us their responses are loving it. Like they're finding it deeply impactful. I mean, powerful is the word that gets thrown around a lot. Tragic you know, really impactful. Um, but of course there are people who don't want to hear it, right? Yeah, They're, there are people who feel personally attacked by the film. And we've always said like, if you feel personally attacked by this film, maybe you have some self-examination to do, right? Yeah. So- No, I agree so, with yeah. that. They yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. That's been the general reaction. They either um, see the point and they appreciate it or they think that it's, some propaganda piece that's attacking them personally. But we've been so lucky that so many communities have have circled around it so heavily. Like the Chelsea Film Festival, uh, where the movie premiered, Ingrid and Sonia Jean-Baptiste have just been really vocal supporters of the movie and it's streaming on film shortage, like it found a home. Uh, it's won a slew of awards through its festival run. So there are, the support that it needed, it, it has found. Is there a possibility of seeing this film maybe become a feature or I'm leaning towards a streaming series perhaps because there's a lot of character building, a lot of character scenarios that Ethan, you could go through in a streaming series with this one. 
You yeah. absolutely could. We've definitely talked about a feature possibility. We hadn't talked about a series, a streaming series, but that's really intriguing. The streaming series is a good idea. There's a I, lot of different universes you can do. Yeah, because that way you can tackle the different elements and expand them even more to where, you know, um, what, what was the dark series? Um, Euphoria? Man, I couldn't get oh, past yeah. it. I couldn't get past the third episode. I'm just like, man, this is just way, way. I mean, I like to sit down to be entertained in the evening. I didn't find that entertaining at all. <laughs> yeah, that show's yeah, really yeah. tough to watch. I, I had a hard time with that one too. It's dark, but yeah, this one, it wouldn't. It's not necessarily dark, depending on how far you push the character's envelope here. Mm. But there is different scenarios. I mean, this is something that I could see Netflix or someone going, yeah, you know, because there's just so much there. Yeah. And, and here's the funny thing. You know, they always say, uh, you know, bad publicity is still publicity. Regardless yeah. of how much hate you would get off a series like this, it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from your yeah. mouth, Ward, like, it's such a complex rabbit hole that there's an endless well of material there to explore, right? And unfortunately, we're living in a time where it just gets increasingly relevant. Like, this is a type of movie that we're hoping one day is no longer relevant at all. But now is not that day. So, Especially with current events globally and the amount of conspiracy theories and volatile online interactions that are mounting daily that like transfer into real world violence. It's, it's, <laughs> it's too relevant. You know, I've talked to people from South Africa, from the Middle East, uh, parts of Europe, and they told me that they do keep a very close eye on the United States. Mm. They don't like what they're seeing because the rest of the world, and I'm not talking about what other world governments think. I'm talking about the people, the citizens. Yeah. And they tell me that when they look at the United States, we still view it as the land of opportunity. But when we see the government start making decisions that start to mirror the governments we live under, then we're thinking if America gets lost, we have no hope. And I was like, you really think that way? And it, it stunned me that they do other, other citizens on this planet, keep a close eye on what we do because they still think we are the land of hope. I mean, we, the United States main export isn't grain or oil, it's culture. And that's by the numbers in terms of how much per capita money the United States makes off of exporting film, television, music, you know, opinion. Apparel. And, yeah, apparel and in influence. Um, so I, I can see why they would think that because if the United States suddenly became a dictatorship, it would be a huge blow 
to, I mean, democracy worldwide. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I hate to say it, but I'm actually not surprised to hear you say that word. Like I had said earlier, Ethan and I were lucky to spend some time touring internationally with a, with a couple different productions. So it's not the first time that I've heard from people living elsewhere that they look at the United States this way. Yeah. You know, um, so you said that high score, the public can watch it on filmshortage.com. Is that, is that the site? That's right. Yes. Filmshortage.com or the easiest way to find it is to go to YouTube and search high score film shortage. Get you right there. All right. Well, I'm going to have to say this. So for all of you at, uh, HBO, Prime Video and Apple and Hulu, uh, Netflix, Paramount. You need to take a real close look at High Score because I think we're looking at a streaming series that would rock this nation in a good way and probably tick off a lot of people. But that's what <laughs> film is for, right? So, Amen. you know, it's a creative art, but both of you tackled one heck of a subject and produced a winner. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Ward. That just really means the world. So what is next for both of you in 2024? Oh, we have a lot going on, always. Uh, we're developing two features right now. Uh, we also work in the branded space, so we, we take a quirky approach to branded content. We have some some of that material that we're producing yeah, right now. Very story driven well. and comedic mostly. Yeah, that's right. Story driven branded work. Um, but we're really digging deep into our feature development right now. Now both of you you own, let me pronounce it correctly, is it Schmet Films? You got that's it. it. You nailed it. I said it right. I was like, I hope I don't <laughs> mess this up. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Where did you get the word from? Oh, so, okay. So Shmay goes back a while. When Ethan and I first started living together, he used to tease me. He would just like make fun of me around the apartment. I would say like pretty much anything. And he would say, well, my name's Serena. Shmay, Shmay, Shmay. And eventually I would be like, I'm not a Shmay, you're a Shmay. And Jorge, our director of photography, heard us calling each other the Schmez because it's set. Yeah, it just <laughs> eventually we both were just calling each other Schmez. And um, when he edited Cash, our first collaboration together, he took it upon himself to call it a Schmez Films production. And we were like, ah, that's it. That's that got to be it. That is trademarked. <laughs> I, I love it. Oh, and you trademarked it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I love that because when I when I was reading through the material, I was like, "Where did that word come from?" <laughs> so I had to ask. I, I I love it. And uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, if you got it, you have to check out the film High Score. Uh, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Hey, we're on the film aisle, so this is what we talk about. High Score at FilmShortage.com, or just type in High Score. Film a shortage on YouTube. You can watch it there. It's a short film, but it is powerful. The acting is stellar. The storytelling is spot on. The emotion. Oh my gosh. When a film l makes you go through a, a multiple 
uh, of emotions. This is a film that does that. And when you finish it, it will stick with you for a while. I mean, I can still think of every scene in high score right now as I'm talking to you, but check it out. Just go to filmshortage.com, type in high score, sit back and watch it, and you'll know exactly what I mean. But Ethan and Serena, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking a lot of this time today to share with us uh, high score and all the elements behind it. Thank, thank you so you, much. Lord. What a pleasure it's been. Well, great. And uh, and when you get your feature film done, you're welcome back anytime. Ah, uh, thank no you. No problem. Thank we'll you. be back. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you can catch all the replays of our interviews with the top film directors, just like Ethan and Serena, as well as producers, screenwriters, and actors, and so much more on our website, bondoncinema.com. You can also watch the interviews on our YouTube channel, Bond on Cinema, and we're also available on a dozen audio platforms as well. I want to thank you for watching and listening. And as for me, well, I'll see you at the movies or from the red carpet.